You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. I'm Adam Weil, co-director of the Cornell Maple Program, recording today from the Eline Maple Research Forest in Lake Placid, New York. And joining me from Ithaca, New York, is my colleague and co-host, Aaron Whiteman. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Adam. How are things up at the Eline Research Forest? Things are going well. We're actually still in the midst of our, our maple season. It's extending along. It's been a, a great, terrific season so far. We've made more syrup than ever, and our production per tap is even up this year. So certainly can't complain about that. And you know we're coming close to the end, but it's continuing along. So how are things down at the R not? Yeah, things are a little different down here. While you're having a kind of a banner season up in the North Country, we've had more of a mixed bag down here due to some warm weather in March. Most producers were coming in at around their average or a little bit under. At the Arnott Forest, we were busy still kind of dialing in our new equipment, so we didn't get fully tapped this year. But we did some research and we made a little syrup, and we're happy with that. It's all about that research. That's the, the most important part of what we do, right? That's right. It is fun to make a good crop of syrup, too, but hopefully next year. Yeah, there's always next season. That's right. That's the, the cold comfort of a bad season <laughs> is we can always start looking forward to next year right away <laughs> if you don't put enough syrup in the barrels. But today, we're going to do something a little different for this episode. As maple specialists, we often receive questions about a wide variety of issues from sugar bush management to marketing syrup and everything in between, right? Yeah, exactly. And as maple specialists, we're always happy to answer questions and, you know, it's part of our job. And so some of those questions, they tend to come up frequently. And so today we're going to kind of answer a selection of those frequently asked questions. Great. Shall we dive right into it? Sure. Let's get started. But first, a quick disclaimer. The questions we're about to read are real questions we've received, but they've been edited for clarity and we've removed names to protect the identity of the people who submitted them. So let's get started. And I'm going to preface this first question by saying it's something that actually often comes from the general public and not from maple producers themselves, but it's something that as maple producers, we are often asked. And that is, how has climate change impacted the production of maple syrup in recent years? This is a tricky question with a lot of details to disentangle, but we can start by zooming out and just saying generally, and I'll ask it of you, Adam, would you say that climate change is going to be beneficial or harmful for maple production? I mean, overall, you know, we know as maple producers that we need those good winters and good freeze-thaw cycles, and that, that climate is really important for maple production. So if we have that warming climate, you know, ultimately that's going to be more harmful potentially in the long run. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the data, what we find, and, and we have data sets going back into the 1800s where people kept their sugaring records, and what we find is that the sugaring season is starting a little earlier, but it's also ending earlier. And the general trend is that we're losing about one day per decade from the sugaring season, which results in fewer sap run days, which could result in less sap. Although when you look at production records, we don't necessarily see less production. And why might that be? Yeah, I mean, that's it's hard to answer this question on how is climate change impacting maple right now because the industry has changed so much that, you know, we can't just line up that data exactly because, as you said, you know, the actual production per tap has gone up. And that has to do with the new technology and advances and the research that we've done within the maple industry with using high vacuum within our systems that's pulling more sap in the research and work on tap hole longevity that allows us to keep those tap holes fresh. If that season does shorten for us in the future, we are collecting the most amount of sap we can within that shorter period. 
That's true. And that's why we do research. We have active research right now on the total dormant season productive potential of maple trees and things like that. And we need to keep doing that work because essentially what's happening is that we're making more syrup in spite of the weather conditions during the sugaring season. Those conditions are not getting better. They are getting worse over time. And eventually we might reach a point where we can't overcome that with technology anymore. And that's that's kind of the more serious long-term implication we're dealing with. Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern within maple production. And, you know, we certainly need to continue to monitor that. And as maple producers, I think we can be part of the solution. We are managing native intact forests. And if we're actively managing our forests to be healthy and growing, they're going to be sequestering carbon. So as maple producers, I think we can kind of turn this back towards consumers and say, hey, look at us. We're trying to do our part. That's a good point. Maple production can be part of the solution if we look at kind of the zero-sum game of where you're going to buy your food. And if you want to buy a sweetener that's produced with the smallest possible carbon footprint, maple syrup can stack up pretty favorably against things like high fructose corn syrup or cane sugar. But it is important to be mindful of best practices for energy in your sugar house especially. So if you can use sustainably harvest firewood that reduces your carbon footprint, using your reverse osmosis machine can vastly decrease your carbon footprint and things like that should be at the top of your mind when you're making maple syrup. And then you can turn around to your consumers and say, look, I made this with a really small carbon footprint, so it's good for the environment compared to other foods. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. You know, on the other side, just not thinking about what's happening in the wintertime, but what's also happening during that growing season, because, you know, that's when all of our sugars are being made. And so if we're having extreme drought periods, that could result in a decrease in production in future maple seasons. Yeah, that's the other kind of worrisome side of climate change, aside from the slow and steady average temperature increase, is the increased frequency of extreme weather events like heat waves, droughts, storms, and things like that. And those can impact our trees, as you said, during the growing season when they're trying to build up their carbohydrate reserves, which can result in a disappointing yield during the sugaring season. Yeah, for sure. And that's why it's just important to continue to collect data and continue to research this. And one of the things we're doing at the Cornell Maple Program is setting up a a network to monitor these different climate elements, both in the growing season and the maple season, and allow us to track those changes and get more detailed information over time so we can better answer these questions in the future. Yeah, and I would encourage maple producers to stay tuned in to that information and and stay up to date on the latest information because there's a lot that's going on here. We haven't even touched on some of the things like over the long run, the range of maple species changing and other impacts like what does climate change do for some of our pest outbreaks. So there, there are going to be a lot of moving parts here that we really need to keep track of and understand as maple producers. Yeah, definitely. That's important. All right, let's move on to our next question. So the listener wrote, when we store our syrup in barrels due to non-enzymatic browning, our syrup is darkening by about 10% light transmittance from when it is stored to when it cools down to room temperature. However, I can't find any research about non-enzymatic browning at 80 to 70 degrees Celsius. Would you be able to direct me to any papers or professors to help with this issue? What do you think, Aaron? Well, it is hard to find academic papers on this very specific issue. However, it's something that's pretty well known in the sugaring industry, and it's commonly referred to as stack burn. 
and we're referring to stacks of barrels in this instance. So it it's a little misleading because we're not actually burning the syrup, but it is darkening. And the setup here, how this happens is when if you're filling a lot of containers very quickly with very hot syrup, and then you stack them closely together, they cool down more slowly. And as we know, a lot of the darkening in syrup is caused by heat-induced reactions. Yeah, and this typically happens more with larger producers who are filling a lot of barrels really quickly and all that heat in a tight area where they're not able to cool down as quickly. And I think it also happens a lot of times with larger producers with concentrating a higher percent sugar with reverse osmosis and passing it really quickly through an evaporator where maybe all the sugars weren't able to caramelize fully. And so when it maintains that heat in the barrels, you can get more of that darkening. Yeah, so the non-enzymatic browning processes that darken syrup are things like caramelization and mired browning. And sometimes we throw out like specific temperatures that those things happen at, but they're actually reactions that kind of coast to a stop as the syrup cools down. And if you put syrup in a barrel at 200 degrees and quickly stack it with other barrels that are close to 200 degrees, it's going to stay warm longer. So it's going to coast to a stop slower and you'll have more of that browning right in the barrel. So a solution to reduce kind of the stack burn is to try to spread out the barrels as much as possible, put them in a cooler area if possible. I know that can be hard in larger production to do that. Yeah, but even if you can just spread them out for a few hours to get that initial high heat to dissipate more quickly or put a fan in the room or open the door and let some cool air in, that will really help with this issue. But it's something you have to be aware of if you're making a lot of quantity really fast. Mm -hmm. We have another question about syrup storage. And this maple producer says, I just bought a few used food-grade barrels that had gravy stored in them. I was going to use them for sap collection. I've washed them a few times now with soap and pressure washer, oxyclean, bleach, vinegar, and baking soda, and many rinses. The barrels are clean but still have a slight odor of gravy. I'm soaking them full of water and baking soda now to see if that helps. Do you know if there is any danger of the odor being imparted into the finished syrup? Should I just buy new barrels? So this is a question we get a lot because it's great to find used equipment, right? Because lowering costs is key to profitability. Yeah, that's that's true. And it's oftentimes easy to find a lot of food-grade plastic containers that are low-cost out at the market, you know, various frosting buckets or especially the big one I think we see a lot are the plastic totes that were used for various liquid sweeteners, especially like lots of sodas. Yeah, there's a cookie factory in Ithaca that uses 300-gallon totes of agave syrup, and when they're done with those, they often put them out at the curb. So there are a lot of opportunities to get free equipment like that. And if it's food grade and it's clean, it can be safe as long as it didn't contain allergens such as milk, egg, nuts, and shellfish. There's also the issue of being mindful of religious dietary guidelines such as kosher and halal. But there can be issues, right? Especially regarding odor and flavor. Yeah, for sure. Within plastic, flavors can really linger. And it's not unheard of to have syrup that is tainted by these off flavors lingering in kind of repurposed plastic containers. So not that it necessarily may be harmful as long as food products were in those plastic containers, but we don't want those flavors such as gravy or agave syrups or something like that getting into our maple syrup. And sometimes the methods that you use to try to remove those odors like sanitizers or bleach 
can impart their own off flavors and odors into the plastic, so you get rid of one problem and replace it with another. One good way to tell whether you had the potential to off-flavor your syrup is simply the sniff test. Put your nose in the container after you rinse it with hot water so it's nice and steamy. Take a good sniff, and if you smell a lingering odor, it's pretty likely that some of that's going to show up in the flavor of your syrup. So if it doesn't smell right, it's probably best to not use it. It's not worth going through all that effort of tapping your trees, putting out buckets or lines, collecting all that sap and doing all that work and energy of concentrating that syrup and make something that has an off flavor from the container that you were using. It's uh, your costs in the end are going to be more by just trying to save a few dollars. Yeah, I don't think I would want gravy flavored maple syrup on my pancakes. No, it doesn't sound very great to me, but maybe on top of some turkey at Thanksgiving, that could be good. Hey, you never know. (laughs) This next question is something I'll direct to you, Adam, because you have more experience with this. And the question reads, where can people find information on birch syrup production? My neighbor and I have started using his maple syrup equipment to make some birch syrup. We're brand new to birch. What are some of the challenges to making birch syrup? So Adam, what are some of the challenges to making birch syrup and where can people find information on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And up at the Eline Forest here, we do tap about 500 birch trees each year and make birch syrup that we do offer for sale at our sugar house here. We do actually have a page on our Cornell Maple website that covers kind of the basics of tapping and collecting birch sap and turning that sap into syrup. And we even have a few recipes on there and ideas of how to use birch syrup. Another resource for information on birch production is if you visit mapleresearch.org, there are actually several papers on birch syrup production as well. So those are a couple of resources. Thinking about some of the challenges to birch syrup production you know, one, we need to think about when's the time of year sap collection. And so birch is different than maples. That birch sap does not require the freeze-thaw cycle that maple does. It actually flows right when the maples are finishing or at the end of maple season. It's when the buds are swelling and starting to open that the roots are pushing the sap up through the tree. And that's the sap that we're actually collecting. So if we think about some of the challenges with tapping birch trees, first of all, the sugar within the sap is usually about 0.6 to 1% sugar. So it's really low. And we usually try to get the same density as maple syrup. So 66 to 67% final density. And we can use that same rule of 87 to divide 87 by the percent sugar to get our ratio of sap to syrup. And so we oftentimes have a ratio of 100 or 120 to 1 for sap to syrup. You know, we have to concentrate birch sap about three times more than we even have to do for our maple. So that's certainly a challenge. And what's great about having those two different seasons of the birch and the maple is that you can use sometimes your same evaporator, your same collection tanks. If you're using vacuum or releaser, you can use some of that same equipment. The challenge, though, is that are you tapping the same amount of trees as maple? If you are concentrating it with reverse osmosis, are you going to have enough sap to fill that evaporator? So that's one of the issues that we have up here at the E-Line is that our big maple evaporator is just way too large for the amount of birch trees that we're tapping. And after we concentrate it, we may only end up with 20 or 30 gallons of concentrate to boil. And so we have to either have a smaller evaporator or we do that right in a steam kettle or you could even do it on a stovetop or propane burner if you've concentrated it with an RO. And reverse osmosis is really kind of necessary for birch production and allows you to be profitable because of that low sugar and the need to concentrate it so much, it's important to have really a reverse osmosis to 
get a good tasting product oftentimes. So it sounds like there, there's a significant opportunity there, but also some challenges. And you addressed the issue of the lower volume of sap not being uh, enough to use in your maple evaporator. Are there other strategies that can be used? I mean, birch syrup is a really unique flavor, but are there other things you can do with the sap? Can you sell it as a drinkable sap so that you don't have to remove all that water? Yeah, that certainly is an option. There are some companies who are bottling birch sap as a beverage. So that is one option. One challenge with that and with tapping birch trees in general is because we're dealing with warmer weather, you know, birch trees like more like at least 50, 60, 70 degree weather days. So keeping that sap from spoiling, especially if you're trying to do it as a beverage, can certainly be a challenge. Birch sap can also be used for brewing and making different beers or cooking with as well, or just drinking it for your own use. So there are some options there. That Those all sound interesting. It sounds like birch syrup can be a little bit difficult, but people do it. And I'm wondering, why do they do it? What is the product like? What's its value? Can you talk about some of those differences between birch syrup and maple syrup, Adam? Yeah, certainly. And I don't, I don't know if I would call it difficult. I think there's just different challenges that we need to think about, but there are approaches that make it a viable operation. And the nice thing about birch is that it adds new product to your, you know, your shelf, to the depth of your lineup that you have and you can offer. There are definitely differences in flavor between maple syrup and birch syrup. Birch syrup can vary wildly in flavor. And unlike maple, which also can vary in flavor, but we have our set grade system. For birch, there is no grade system. And depending on how it's cooked, it's going to influence flavor. So Birch syrup for one producer can taste very different from another producer or even within the season can change that. And that has to do with, you know, some of it has to do with how long that sap's been sitting around till it's processed, but also how it's actually processed. So I like to think that birch syrup has more of a flavor, almost like a balsamic reduction, at least the syrup that we make at the Eline Forest. So it's not something that you want to put on pancakes or in your coffee or yogurt Think more like salad dressings on sandwiches, marinades, roasted vegetables. One of my favorite uses of our birch syrup is actually make like a white pizza. That with a little olive oil instead of a red sauce is actually really good. And so it's different uses. And so that's another challenge with production is the education to consumers. Because if people are thinking maple syrup and you have it selling right next to your maple syrup, you know, when they go to sample that, if they're thinking maple syrup, really sweet, pour this on my pancakes, they're probably not going to like it. So you really need to educate, give them examples of how to use that birch syrup. Yeah, we're dealing with a gourmet product here, right? I think one of the most high-end meals I've had recently at a really good restaurant in Utica had uh, one of the dishes I had was baby carrots that had been somehow marinated or uh, cooked with uh, caramelized birch syrup. And it was really delicious. Uh, I've got to say, it really surprised me how good it was. So that's the value we're getting out of birch syrup, right? Is this gourmet product. Oh, for sure. It's definitely kind of that higher end gourmet, but there's a lot of really neat uses. And for foodies who really like to cook and experiment with different things, birch is a, a great product or a great gift to give to folks. From a consumer standpoint, you know, we have to sell it at a higher value. You know, all of our Birch syrup, we package in smaller glass bottles. And so, you know, it is more expensive, but it doesn't take much. It's not like we're drowning our pancakes with it. 
or pouring a whole half a cup into our coffee, it doesn't take much to get that flavor into your food products, which is kind of great. And at the Eline Forest, we've actually switched and we put all of our birch syrup into small square, tall bottles. Like to me, I want consumers to think about that it's like an olive oil or balsamic vinegar shaped bottle because that's the use that I want them to associate with. Wow, that's all really exciting. Makes me think we should tap our birch trees at the Arnott Forest. Except that I don't think I want my sugaring season to run that long. That's that's probably one of the biggest challenges of the downsides. And I would say why a lot of maple producers don't tap birch trees is that it gets tiring. And you know, I'll certainly admit that by the time maple's finally over, and especially for all the research that we're doing through the season, that then we get into birch season and it's kind of like, oh man, like we got to do this for a few more weeks still. And so that that certainly can be a challenge. But on the other side is it's a great way to get more revenue out of your equipment that you do have if you can utilize some of that same equipment. And if you have any hired staff or if you're doing, you know, syrup production full time, this just extends your season and creates more product that you can actually sell. And consumers want new things. They're always looking for unique, different things. And so when they see, oh, birch syrup, what's that? Tell me about it. I want to try it. And so I think a lot of times people will buy it just because it's new and different and they want to experiment with it. And so, you know, I think from a sales point, that's not something that you need to be concerned about too much. People are out there looking for those new new things on the store shelf. Yeah, novelty can be a powerful marketing tool. So there's more than one species of birch trees that are native to the Northeast. So there's black birch, yellow birch, paper birch, river birch, a whole variety of different birch species. Is there a difference between these? Can you tap all of them? Yeah, that's a great question. From research that's been done, we find that all the birch trees tend to be relatively similar in their percent sugar in the sap and the sap compounds that give you similar tasting syrup. At the Eline Forest, we're tapping both yellow birch and our our paper birch, also called the white birch, because that's what we natively have in our forest. But I've tapped black birch, I've tapped river birch, gray birch before, and they've all had about the same sugar and made great syrup. Wow, thanks for all that detailed information, Adam. And I'll just add a final point for our listeners that this seems to be an area of increased interest. The idea of tapping alternative species like birch and beech and walnut. So potential area to expand your business if you're a maple producer. So something to keep an eye out for. This topic on birch syrup could certainly be its own podcast episode, and hopefully we'll have some time to do that in the future. So let's move on to a question that actually comes from a consumer. And this question reads, I got into a lighthearted argument recently with someone who asserted that pure opened maple syrup could be left unrefrigerated because of the sugar content. My boyfriend and I were not convinced. We live in upstate New York and have always refrigerated our New York State maple syrup. So Aaron, this is a question I think I get from consumers a lot as well. What do we do with that maple syrup once we open it? Yeah, this is a classic argument and it's one that I think the conventional wisdom has changed over time. So let's address this in different parts. First, maple syrup is legendary for its shelf life. If you hot pack it correctly in a clean container and leave it unopened, that syrup can last for decades. I read a story recently about a container of syrup that was found in an attic in an old farmhouse, and I believe they determined it was made in the late 1800s. And when they opened it, Over a hundred years later, it still tasted like maple syrup. So it does have that that property that it can be stored for long periods of time, 
without spoiling. But that's not the whole story, is it, Adam? No, it's not. And when we look at maple syrup and compare it to some other syrups or sugar products that are out there, such as honey, honey has a lot higher sugar content than what maple syrup has. And so there is still a fair amount of water in maple syrup, and it has the potential to form mold if it's not refrigerated once it's open. You know, So if it's hot packed properly, it will store for a long time. But once it's been open, there is still water content within that maple syrup that we can have various molds that can grow. Yeah, I think the, the confusion on the scientific point here, the assumption is that microbes can't survive in a high sugar solution. The reason that's partially true is a high sugar solution kills the bacteria. But bacteria aren't the only microbes that can get into syrup. And as you pointed out, Adam, molds can survive in that environment. And the conventional wisdom in the past was if you get a little mold on your maple syrup, you can just boil it and skim that off and it's fine. But what we're learning is that molds can produce mycotoxins that can potentially be dangerous. So that's not a 100% safe practice and not recommended anymore. Maybe the friend of the person asking this question consumes their maple syrup so quickly that it doesn't actually form mold. So, you know, that is one option, consume it in high volumes and quickly. But if not, for safety purposes, it's always best once that maple syrup's open to keep it inside your fridge. So here's another question that I'll direct at you, Adam. This listener asks, I heard on a recent podcast that Cornell has developed a high-yield maple tree, the sap from which can have 6% or higher sugar content compared to normal content of 1.5 to 3.5%. Where can I learn more? I did a web search for high-yield maple tree sap and other similar searches and haven't found anything. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about this and whether the evidence indicates that these trees are worth planting, if it's still an important thing to plant trees with high sugar content when we have reverse osmosis and high-efficiency evaporators? What are your thoughts on this, and what's a little bit of the background information? Yes, this is a project that actually dates back to the 1960s and was started by the U.S. Forest Service to try to identify and produce trees that are sweeter in sap. And, you know, we're thinking at 1960s, that is prior to reverse osmosis and where that was definitely more important to try to save energy in that processing sap down into syrup. And so this has been developed and then the Forest Service ended up discontinuing the project and my predecessor, Lou Stats, picked it up. Um, and has been working on it since the early 90s, I believe, at the E-Line Forest, and then kind of continued on through all the directors at the E-Line Forest. And so continue to do a little bit of work with the sweet trees. There are a few different plantations across the Northeast, and we've actually done a relatively comprehensive study of the sap production and sap sweetness the last three maple seasons, and found that some of the trees were averaging sometimes 5 6 7% across the whole season. You know, sometimes even have a one day high of 8, 10, 12%. But what I found was a lot of times with those trees that were really high in sugar, that the sap volume wasn't always that high. And so when you look at total syrup production, which is, you know, really the important aspect, especially with reverse osmosis, and that there was kind of a dilution factor in there and those really high ones. But the ones that were more like 4%, 5% in sugar still had good sap volume, but those seemed to be a little bit better. But it's also some of the trees we have here in Lake Placid aren't always, aren't the healthiest trees overall. You know, so if we think about, you know, is it important to plant sweet trees and still remember that, 
you know, it's still going to take 40 years if you plant that tree potentially until that's going to be of a tappable size and standard tapping practices. So, so it's not like you're instantly going to have this tree and it's not going to necessarily bring you a lot more syrup production from that individual tree. And that sometimes you can still, as long as you have nice big canopies on it and it's in a healthy soils and stuff like that, you can still have a general maple tree that can be relatively high in production. So you don't necessarily just have to have these super sweet trees. I know that doesn't necessarily help sell them as a, a factor here, but you know it can be a nice thought to be able to plant these sweet trees. And that is important to have higher sugar as long as they're producing higher sap as well. And if you're going to plant a maple tree, it does make sense to plant one that's going to be a little bit higher in sugar. But unfortunately, the availability of the trees can be a little bit of a challenge for us. And so here at the Eline Forest, right now, we are not selling them directly ourselves. We actually collect the seeds and send them to a nursery out in Missouri called Forest Keeling. And then they grow out the seeds and sell the seedlings to different nurseries or to individuals. And so I am working with another nursery trying to build up more of a market of the trees for those who are looking for them. But unfortunately, right now, our availability for the trees is a little bit limited. Do these trees have a name? Are they called super sweet maples or something like that? I seem to recall that there was a name. Of yeah, typically they're called the Cornell super sweet maple trees. And there is certainly some variability. You know, we can't guarantee that every single one is going to be 6%, 7%. And like I said, I don't think we want them to be that high from what I'm initially finding. But because we are doing seed production at this point in time, there is going to be natural variation just within the basics of genetics. I've heard two concerns about these trees that I'm wondering if you could address, Adam. The first one is, I've heard some people aren't convinced that they're actually sweeter. They think because of the way they're grown. Um, Sometimes when you have a seed orchard, you have trees that are in the open so they can develop a, a larger crown, that perhaps that's responsible for the higher sugar content. And the other concern I've heard is that people think they attract deer more than other trees. So there's a lot more deer damage, but you know, that could also be dependent on where it's planted. Have you heard either of these concerns or do you know how to address them? I haven't heard the concern with deer. I don't think that's uh, necessarily a factor per se. I would say like, like you said, I think it's more just where it's planted, but I have heard sometimes the concern that maybe they're not necessarily sweeter. And like I said, there is natural variation. So we can't necessarily guarantee that every single one's going to be you know, 5% sugar per se, the way they are seed propagated. The issue with trying to propagate maple trees to be cloned in that there was some studies and some of the initial sweet trees were planted from branches that were collected from the initial parent trees. And the initial parent trees, the U.S. Forest Service did a large sampling across the whole Northeast from Ohio to Maine with these big transects. And they sampled like over 20,000 maple trees to identify ones that were genetically sweeter and they did look at at least three or four trees surrounding that tree if they found one that was higher in sugar they would sample other trees around that to make sure it wasn't the site factors that the soils and where that was facing that was making that tree necessarily sweeter so they did identify ones that were genetically sweeter but the initial ones that they did were actually grafted onto rootstocks and the problem was was that rootstock was from seed from just wild-grown trees. So it wasn't known whether that rootstock was sweet or not. And, you know, that's what happens in the apple industry. And a lot of trees are grafted onto rootstocks. And, you know, in apples, it's all about the fruit, 
that's coming from that above ground structure. But with maple, the roots are really important for sap production, sap sugar. And because of the variation in that rootstock, it actually just played a lot of variation in the sap that we were actually collecting and getting from those trees. And so that makes it a little more challenging. Getting maples to clone through like rooted cuttings or tissue culture is a lot more challenging. It is possible, but it is more challenging. That's why the the easiest for maple, sugar maple production is through seeds. And so you can get some natural variation, but then site factor is really going to be important as well. As I said, you know, you want to make sure there's healthy soils, large canopies on those trees is going to influence that maple. Yeah, those are all interesting points, Adam, and clearly a lot of work has been done on this. And one interesting thing to note is how much work the Forest Service did on maple syrup production back in the 50s and 60s. It's it's hard to find that research sometimes, but if you find it, it's really fascinating to look through some of those studies. They were rigorous, and there are interesting results that are still relevant today. Yeah, it is. One of the challenges with trying to develop the super sweet maple trees is the length of time that it takes for maple trees to grow to that stage of sexual maturity where they're actually producing seeds if they can be cross-pollinated. And so, you know, unlike with potatoes or tomatoes or corn, you know, crops that are reaching maturity within a single growing season, plant breeders, you know, they're still taking multiple generations to develop new varieties. And for maple trees, you know, if it takes 40 years to reach sexual maturity to able to flower and produce seeds, that's multiple generations of people working on this project to reach that stage where we can develop these trees that are naturally going to be sweeter in sap. Yeah, breeding better characteristics into trees with a long life cycle is certainly an intergenerational endeavor. And that might be why we don't see as much work on this, but it is important work. And it's interesting to see that those ideas have been around for a long time and that we're actually slowly chipping away at it here. This research started in the 60s and here we are, you know, 60 years later and we're still working on it. So maybe over the long term, we'll see some pretty interesting results for that. Definitely. Yeah, you'll have to stay tuned. Moving on from talking about the trees and sap production to syrup production, here's a question from a maple producer asking, why doesn't my maple syrup pass through my filter system? Is it too much sugar sand or is that we're close to the end of the season and the syrup has somehow gotten thicker? For those who haven't produced as much maple syrup, typically at the end of the season, we'll get more microbial and sugar sand in the syrup. And so it is usually harder to filter right at the end of the season. But Aaron, what is your typical response to questions on issues with filtering? Yeah, this is one of those points of high frustration for a lot of new maple producers because you do all that work to get the sap collected and process it. And then you're at a moment of, I think, almost high anxiety because you have this hot syrup that you want to get quickly into a container. And then you put it in your filters and it just sits there and doesn't go anywhere. And that's a really common experience. And there are a couple of reasons for this. To begin with, there are two main categories of filtration. And one is the cloth or gravity filters, and the other is a pressure filter. Most small producers are using these cloth or gravity filters. And they're basically like a a fabric cone that the syrup gets poured into while it's hot and it slowly trickles through the filter. They're fairly effective, but they don't last very long. Pressure filters, on the other hand, are things like filter presses. So there's a pump that squeezes 
the syrup through a really fine filter that usually utilizes diatomaceous earth to enhance the filtration effect. And you can put a large volume of syrup through those and they're really effective. Adam, do you have any experience filtering with these fabric filters? Yeah, that's what we use up here at the E-Line Force. We use a fabric filter, but we are also using a pressure pump with that. So it's, uh, we use what's called the Ciro filter. Um, but using the fabric filters on a gravity, you know, we typically aren't for our maple syrup. We have been playing around with making a small kind of vacuum filter for small batches. So some of the experimental stuff that we're doing, because it is certainly an issue. And so creating little vacuum filters where you're kind of putting suction below that fabric to try to pull that sap down through can be a lot more cost effective than the large pressure pumps that are required for larger operations. Hmm, That's really interesting. In our family sugar bush, we've always used the cone style filters and just let gravity do the work. And over the years, we've developed some some tricks that help us do that more effectively. And so there's there's the two different styles of fabric filters are the more the bed style, so it's laying flat, flat filter, or the cone style filter. And the advantage of the cone style filter is you have more head pressure to help push the syrup through the filter. The downside of that is all the filtration is kind of concentrated there at the bottom of the cone, which makes it plug a little faster. One way around that is by using layers of pre-filters. So the pre-filters are usually a a thinner fabric that sits inside the, the heavier felt cone. And if you put a few layers of those in and try to get a little separation between them, As those pre-filters clog, you can use a pair of heat-resistant gloves to carefully lift that clogged pre-filter and dump the syrup into the next pre-filter. And using that method, you can kind of extend the amount of syrup you get through your filter. So there are ways to improve filter performance, making sure the syrup is nice and hot, making sure your filter is fresh and clean and doesn't have a lot of sugar sand kind of packed into the, the fabric. Those are all things that can help. Some things to avoid for sure are things like coffee filters. They don't work for large volumes. Another thing to avoid are are practices like trying to stir the syrup while it's in the fabric filter to try to make it go through the filter because all you do is really force some of the sugar sand through the filter and it ends up in the syrup. So there are certainly some, some best practices and best ways to filter. It's really too much to describe in detail here in a podcast. But I would point you towards some good resource like the Maple Producer Manual or something like that to learn a little bit more about filtration if you're having problems. Yeah, and as you said, the pre-filter I think is really important. But various points of the season, sometimes filtering can be more challenging. It's not always at the end of the season necessarily. And sometimes we don't always know. It's just sometimes you get heavier mineral loads at certain points of the season. So this particular season, I know for us, there was like three days and maybe the first like, quarter a third of the season and I also heard folks in other regions and kind of near us and even in northern New York northern Vermont that also had issues at that same exact time with filtering and so sometimes it's just harder it may take a little bit more diatomaceous earth you might need to clean those filters change them swap them out a little more often to get through you know even with those pressure pumps we were still having issues and so it it is challenging at different times of the year. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm glad you said that, Adam. Even when you're doing everything right, sometimes you run into those issues like heavy sugar sand, which can happen intermittently through the season. And another one we haven't mentioned yet is is ropey syrup. So if you all of a sudden have syrup that was, you know, was flowing through your filter just fine, and then all of a sudden you can't get any syrup through your filter, sometimes that's a, a bit of ropey syrup that formed in your evaporator between 
firing it the last time and when you start back up. So that's always something to check. If you're running into issues with filtration real suddenly, you can dip a utensil into the, the syrup before it goes into the filter and hold it up and see if it's super stringy. And if it is, then you, you probably have a ropey syrup on your hands. Yeah. yeah, and that's pretty common late in the season when the weather's warmer, right? Yeah, or if you've had a long period in between runs due to a, a stretch of warm weather. So if you leave your, your syrup in your evaporator and the, the sap stops running because it's warm for a few days and it gets warm in the sugar house, sometimes it can spoil right in the evaporator. Yeah. I think the, the take-home message is that there are a lot of different reasons that filters can clog. It's especially challenging late in the season that you can try some of these different strategies, but if you're a small producer and it becomes frustrating, then maybe it is time to stop or just store your syrup unfiltered, let the sugar sand and other impurities settle to the bottom and pour off the good portion. And, and you can do that if you're using it for your own personal consumption and not intending to sell it. So there's some different strategies to adapt to this complication that you often run into late in the season. So that was our last question for today, but this was really fun. I, when I answer these questions over email, my answers tend to be short, but being able to talk with you, Adam, and kind of hash out a lot more of the details, I think was, will be more informative for people. It's a more complete answer. So we'll definitely try to do more episodes like this in the future. Yeah, it is fun to have these discussions on these different topics and questions that do come up quite often to hear each of our own perspective on that, I think is always neat because, you know, I always learn from hearing your response to questions as well. Yeah, so we'll look forward to that in a future episode. Looking forward to it. Have a question for a maple specialist? We want to hear from you. Submit your questions on the Sweet Talk webpage at cornellmaple.com and we might choose your question to read on the show. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk, all things maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.